0: Welcome to the podcast on Natural Dallas, or The Pond for short. Here's where we take the measure of the natural world that is all around us,
1: probing its secrets,
0: and beholding its mysterious wonders.
1: The flora, the fauna,
0: the earth below our feet, and the sky above our heads. All is for a game as we wade ever more deeply into the waters of discovery.
1: This podcast is brought to you by the staff of the Dallas Public Library,
0: where we strive to connect the curious with the passionate and foster a culture of lifelong learning. The views shared on this podcast are those of its participants, and not those of the library or the city of Dallas. Let's get started! Welcome to The
2: Pond. I'm Ryan. Some of you probably don't recognize my voice, as my role with The Pond podcast has largely been behind-the-scenes recording and editing, but today was kind of a special day, because I have been involved with the podcast since the beginning, and this episode is... Kind of a culmination, in a sense, since one of our founding members of the pond is actually going to be leaving the library here this after this week. Y'all have heard Greg on many of our episodes. In fact, I think it goes all the way back to the very
1: first one. I was back at the very beginning. I think the very first episode uh, that we recorded, I was accompanying a uh, woman, Sayo, when she did an interview on native bees. And so I went along and um, was there. though.
2: Do you remember, was it Mark that initially had the original idea for the pond and kind of how he brought the idea to your attention?
1: Right. Yeah, this was initially, this was uh, Mark's idea. We began broadcasting Pond episodes back in 2017 with a purpose in mind. And uh, in the words of Mark, uh, who was the Dallas Public Library manager who started the series, He said, As city dwellers, we often overlook the most basic aspects of the natural world, questions as basic as what wildflowers are important in our region, where and when can I see them, are strangely remote. Our short-form podcast will seek to correct this by bringing focus to such matters. I think we've made progress in bringing the focus Mark talked about thanks to the community of organizations and individuals, professionals and knowledgeable amateurs in our area who've shared their expertise and passion about nature topics as we've interviewed them. So uh, you mentioned, Mark, the original cast of characters, uh, including yourself, was uh, Catherine Sayo and myself and other team members along the way have joined up with the pond as we've transitioned from one group to another. Couple of other names that come to mind, uh, Norma Martin. And I believe Jacqueline uh, also contributed an episode or two. The Pond has a relatively new post-pandemic team of Carlos, Mel, Matt, and then you, of course, are continuing to be involved. One other thing I'll add is that as many of our listeners may know uh, who've been with us from back at the beginning, The Pond is really, uh, it's really a three-part or has been a three-part initiative historically. When we first started out the... The podcast was one of the main features, but then we also had a newsletter that ran uh, about the same time, and we would also focus on some of the same topics that we covered in the podcast episodes. Again, trying to highlight nature in the Dallas area, Uh, we focused on groups. That have amateurs involved as well as sometimes professionals uh, like the North Texas master naturalists, the uh, Audubon societies, uh, those types of folks. And so we've tried to sh- shine a spotlight on some of the organizations and uh, communities that exist just here in this area that people can get involved in and this is a very there's a lot of overlap between some of these different groups and Uh, There's a lot of interconnectedness. So the newsletter, the podcast series, and then the third aspect was our Nature Expo, which we had our first one in 2017. And in these expos, we brought together some of these same community organizations so they could have information tables at the library. Folks could come in and visit with them, find out from them what it is they do, uh, what their focus is, why it's important and how they can be involved if they'd like to be. So we've had those groups. A lot of times we've had, I say wild animals, a lot of times they're called what you call ambassador animals. They're animals that are naturally in the wild, but for one reason or another they are uh, being taken care of humans for now. So,
2: and I guess this year will be the first, since, since the pandemic, it'll be the first in-person one this July, what's the date? July? July 23rd. July 23rd.
1: Nice. Right. So our first three years, 2017, 2018, and 2019, were in-person expos. And then in 2020, uh, as everybody knows, things kind of blew up on the in-person activities. And so what we did was we did some v- video recordings. Some of the same groups that had participated with in-person tables at the expo contributed videos, which we put out on a designated day during the summer, just like we would have a in-person expo on a certain day. So we released those videos. And then in 2021, we did the same thing, but we also introduced some real-time elements. We had a Zoom presentation from some the folks from the Fort Worth Zoo, showed off some of their native animals native Texas animals, and uh, talked to them. Uh, we had the North Texas Master Naturalist, who've contributed a lot of expertise over the past few years for podcast episodes and have been at uh, in-person expos. A gentleman named uh, Sam Kieschnick was a speaker uh, representing the North Texas Master Naturalist. And uh, he gave a really good talk on urban wildlife. And again, that was a Zoom presentation. The third uh, live event that we had via Zoom was featuring uh, Carol Clark, who spoke about flowers of the Blackland Prairie, which uh, she just had some uh, beautiful uh, photos that had been captured from prairies within the Blackland region ecosystem. And uh, that was a really a really good talk. So we had the video element and then we had those two live elements. And then this year we were very pleased to see that we were going to be able to uh, offer in-person expo again. And so uh, the Pond team is hard at work trying to pull that together and try to round up some of the same groups that have participated in the past. i will tell you one of the highlights I would say
2: for those of us that have been involved with it was back in 2020, even though the pandemic- Pandemic was going on, one thing that was really neat was that we participated in one of the uh, achievement ceremonies of the Urban Libraries Council. And we were in the education hyphen adults category where we received an honorable mention.
1: That was an honor to, to receive that. We decided to apply for the award uh, a few months before that, uh, probably back in 2019. And uh, so we put together a proposal, kind of let People know what it was that uh, we had done with the pond and sent that in, didn't think about it, or at least I didn't think about it for a few months, and then learned that we received this uh, this honorable mention, which is like kind of like second place, I think, in this particular set of awards. So uh, it was gratifying to see that uh, from the broader library world, they recognized uh, what we were doing. That was a definite plus for uh, our library and for the Team. So, given that this is kind of your final special episode,
2: I think we've got some clips here that we might like to share with our audience. So, we've pulled some clips from some of our, a couple of our most listened to episodes, but some that are that were kind of memorable in certain respects, and some that just kind of relate to you as a <laughs> your areas of interest. So, what's what's our first clip there, Greg?
1: Right. So we have a couple of audio clips from one of the pond's earliest episodes entitled Coyotes and Bobcats, an interview we conducted with urban biologist Brett Johnson of the City of Dallas Parks and Recreation Department. And as you mentioned, this was one of our most downloaded episodes at the time, and this continues to be a timely topic Just in the past month or so, we've seen news stories here in the Dallas area with headlines like, lost puppy rescued by family turns out to be baby coyote. Uh, Another one I saw today, local filmmaker spotted this somewhat scraggly bobcat roaming around Flagpole Hill, uh, which the article had some pictures this photographer had snapped of this bobcat that was observed on the White Rock Lake. Properties. So the first clip we're going to play speaks to distinguishing physical characteristics of bobcats and coyotes. Most of us have some level of a mental picture of bobcats and coyotes. We kind of get a visual image uh, when people mention those terms. But sometimes folks are a little unclear about their physical attributes as far as how big they actually are. For example, you probably heard people claiming to have seen mountain lions when actually it's probably more likely that they saw bobcats. Do you want to talk a little bit about distinguishing physical characteristics of both bobcats but also coyotes?
3: Okay, uh, on the bobcats, yes, I over the years I have taken well over 100 what I like to refer to as the mythical mountain lion sightings. In close to 13 years in the Dallas-Fourth Metroplex, I've never actually confirmed a mountain lion in Dallas or Tarrant County or any of the continuing counties. Uh, As far as our actual physical characteristics go, an adult bobcat, a female, is going to typically be anywhere between about 12 and 16 pounds. So just a little bit bigger than your standard house cat. A male is going to typically be anywhere between about uh, 18 and 24 pounds. In our study, we did have one large male that looked very large. He was 29 pounds. The interesting catch with him was he was also a very monocolored or just one colored bobcat. If you just saw him at night, if you didn't really take note of the tail, he was a fairly tall cat. And I could see where there'd be some room for some misidentification, but not that much. Uh, he'd have been a little bit taller than uh, knee high. But again, realistically, we're generally speaking between about 12 and 24 pounds on those bobcats. On the coyotes, that's another one we get a lot of misinformation out there. Over the years, anytime I took a bob or a coyote call, Generally speaking, they would start at about 50 pounds. Here's the reality on the coyotes. Females are going to run about 22 to 29 pounds. Males are going to run anywhere between about 29 pounds and 33 pounds. That's the general extent. A 35-pound coyote in this area is a large coyote. And like I said, people generally right off the bat will claim... 50 pounds plus we may occasionally have a 40 pound coyote walking around this area but that 40 pound coyote is visually going to look bigger than an 80 pound german shepherd but he's not Uh, the other issue we have to deal with with coyotes and guessing their sizes is during the summer they're a lanky species so when people are thinking they're starving they're not that's just their natural appearance Uh, we typically when we think about our dogs most of our dogs are actually overfed and generally are more heavier than they should be. You can't make the assumption that, you know, what looks good on a coyote isn't what's supposed to look good on a dog.
1: Another more disturbing news story from the past month or so was about a child being attacked by a coyote in Dallas. It turns out from Dallas Animal Services' investigation of the attack that, as stated in a WFAA article on the attack, the coyote was well-known in the neighborhood And that residents were routinely hand-feeding and petting the coyote due to its lack of fear of human contact. So the second clip we're going to play speaks to coexisting with coyotes and bobcats in a way that they don't become a threat to pets or people. We did touch on some of these issues already as far as pets and everything, Uh, but what, as an urban biologist, uh, what concerns have you heard from residents uh, about the presence of these carnivores here in our cities, and what's the best way we can coexist with these animals, both the bobcats and the coyotes?
3: All right, for both of them, it generally comes down to three main areas of concern. The first one being disease. There's concern everybody usually jumps to rabies. Both can technically carry rabies, Neither one tend to be a big rabies carrier in this area. We go entire years here in Texas where we may only have one, two, or zero coyotes in the entire state test positive for rabies. So again, I'm not encouraging you to go play with them, but they're generally not a big rabies carrier. Uh, Same with a bobcat. But ultimately, when it comes to rabies, though, it's generally a concern with pets. Easiest thing to do: make sure you keep your pets current on their uh, rabies vaccinations. There are other potential diseases that uh, both coyotes and bobcats can carry. But the easiest thing to do, again, is keep them separate. And generally speaking, that comes to good fence maintenance and watching where you uh, feed your pets. I encourage feed them indoors. If you do feed them outdoors, just feed an amount that they're going to eat in one sitting and then take in their food bowls. So there's not that attractive factor. Uh, When you are out, be it a dog or a cat, I encourage keeping your dog or a cat on a leash and by that i mean within six feet of you under your control retractable leashes where they where the dog can go run into the bushes with the coyotes um, that leads to the uh, issue of is it the coyote trying to take the pet or is it self-defense on the coyote's part so we've got the issue of diseases and taking pets um, then we general concern then usually goes to safety related to kids keep in mind in the history of the u.s there's only been two coyote related fatalities ever. In the main case in California, it was a matter of the neighbors were hand-feeding the coyotes in the weeks leading up to the incident, and it was with a three-year-old girl that was unattended in her front yard at the time. Lots of lessons to be learned, very easy to avoid. Most of the time, when uh, in over 85% of the cases where someone has been injured by a coyote, hand-feeding has been involved. Right off the bat, that seems like a really easy thing to avoid. You know, if you're not out there literally trying to hand something to the coyote, your chances of having an injury related to a coyote are pretty much slim to none. In Texas, we've had uh, either 6 or 7, depending on how you look at it, people injured by coyotes and all of them have been extremely minor in nature. And of those 6 or 7, uh, at least 4 of them have involved someone trying to hand a treat to the coyote. Again, Not a good idea. Bobcats are even less than that. You can find some stuff on... YouTube. Uh, most of the injuries related to bobcats have actually been out of Arizona and that actually has been a rabies issue. We have not seen that much at all in Texas. In fact, most injuries related to bobcats in Texas were turkey hunters. So they're wearing camouflage, sitting in the bushes and clucking like a turkey. So surprise. Right. <laughs> you invited a predator. Yeah. <laughs> Again, very easy to avoid. If I uh, message to everybody, make sure your pets are vaccinated and don't feed the wildlife.
1: In seeking out topics for podcast episodes, sometimes I've gravitated towards learning about types of animals that I think are interesting but often misunderstood or even feared. This clip we're going to play now is from an interview with urban biologist Rachel Richter of the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department about an animal that fits into this category. The episode is number 11 and the title is Bats. Let's start off our conversation talking about bats and how they're classified Now, they're classified separately than other mammal groups, like rodents or carnivores. So, what distinguishes bats as a group?
0: Good question. So, bats are in the order Chiroptera, which translates to mean hand-wing. And if you looked at a bat skeleton, you would see why. Um, They have, when you're looking at the arms and hand bones, you'll see that they're very elongated, and they have um, very long finger bones, and it's actually the the finger bones that support that flap of skin that enables the bats to fly, that makes up the bat wing. And um, bats are the only mammals that are capable of true, powered, sustainable flight. Um, there are some other species of mammals that you might be familiar with, like flying squirrels um, that are able to glide, but bats are the only ones that can um support their own flight. And bats are also, as a group, um, members of the order Chiroptera, they are incredibly diverse. When we're looking at the different types of mammals, the most diverse order of mammals are the rodents, Um, and then the second most diverse is the bats. And there's actually about 1,300 species of bats that are found globally, and that makes about one in every four mammal species is actually a bat.
1: You know, we're very fortunate in the DFW area to have some really wonderful places that provide excellent living conditions for native plants and animals, as well as being open for public exploration and other learning experiences. We've had a great time taking our portable recording equipment on the road to visit some of these spots for interviews like the Trinity River Audubon Center and Louisville Lake Environmental Learning Area. In this next clip, uh, which is from episode 26 it's one where we visit a really cool place in Siegelville called john bunker sands wetland center where wetland habitats benefit both wildlife and people the clip includes an introduction to our hosts and we are actually recording from the grounds of the john bunker sands wetland center out in Siegelville, it's actually—I think it may be on the border of Siegelville and. That's Combine. right. It is okay. Yeah, we're in the country. We're in Kaufman County. We're in the country, so we are out on the the back porch in the John Booker Sands Wetland Center, and we'll talk a little bit more about the Wetland Center here in a few minutes. But we are being hosted by the director of the Wetland Center, uh, John DiFilippo. Yes, that's the Italian pronunciation. Perfect. All right. Uh, John is the director, and then Linda Dunn is the education manager here. So uh, we're really excited that y'all invited us out to see this beautiful place, and I wish we could paint a picture for the listener. Well, we're um, real
3: happy to share the property with you and tell you about what we do, and hopefully more people will learn about us in
1: the process. Okay. Well, uh, just to give our listeners kind of an idea where we're headed, uh, we're going to talk about wetlands in general— and kind of how what a wetland is, uh, okay. how they operate, mm-hmm. what their benefits are, etc. And then we're going to zero in a little bit and talk specifically about the wetland center here and what it is that uh, you guys are doing here. Perfect. Sounds so, good. Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and start out. So what makes a wetland a wetland?
4: Good question, considering we're talking about wetlands. Um, And that is one of the things that we go over with the students when they're here. And and actually for a piece of property or an area to be considered a wetland, um, there's three different things that they have to have. Number one is obviously water, but not just water every now and then. Um, It's considered the field of hydrology, so the water has to be active. It has to be there for at least six months of the year. The soils have to be completely wet, called hydrology. Soils um, all the time with at least six months of the year and a a real indicator of a wetland that most people see is obviously the plant life because that's what's growing up out of there. And so there are specific plants that grow in a wetland called hydrophytic plants and they specifically need wet soil. Um, If they're on a terrestrial area, they won't live. So they have to be in that hydric soil and they're a very specific kind of plant because of the adaptations that they have to live in an aquatic environment So those three things are what we need. We need to have water in the field of hydrology, we need to have hydric soils, and we need to have plants that are hydrophytic plants meant to be in a wetland. And they have to be there for at least um, all three of those capabilities. So sometimes they may only be there for a little while, the water, but they have to have those three things.
1: I think the episode this next clip comes from may fall into the category of covering animals of I find interesting, but many people may not understand fully or find threatening, similar to bats. The person we interviewed was Michael Smith, a herping expert and co-author of the book Herping Texas, and the episode title is Herps and Herping in North Texas and Beyond. For those not familiar with the term herping, the audio clip provides an explanation. If we could just start off with just a kind of a quick definition of herping. So what is herping? Is it like a scientific
5: practice or a hobby? It might be a little bit of a hybrid sometimes. Uh, herping, the the analogy I'd like to start with is that herping is a little bit like birding. So if you are interested in birds and you go finding birds and observing them, you're a birder and what you're doing is called birding. So if you're interested in reptiles and amphibians, which are called Herpetofauna is sort of the long word, but herps for short. If you're interested in those animals, then you're going out looking for those. So you're a herper and what you're doing is herping. So that's, that's kind of what that is. And most people who are herpers are pretty well read in at least things like, um, what the animals are how they're how they're classified and where they're found. Uh, they're not necessarily scientists. I, I am not a trained herpetologist, for example, in in the academic sense. We do things like using citizen science, like the uh, app iNaturalist that your listeners may be familiar with, to record observations in the field, and that contributes to real science. Uh, and so there, there is a little bit of a crossover. Um, herpetology as a science can involve a lot of things in the laboratory with you looking at DNA and things like that. But it also involves studies in the field that may look quite a bit like just regular herping.
1: I think what I most enjoyed from my interview with Michael was hearing stories of some specific encounters he experienced while herping, including an alligator encounter and a chance to observe an indigo snake, one of Texas's largest and most beautiful snakes in action. The final clip we're going to play is from our most recent podcast episode. Now, we were thrilled that arborist and nationally syndicated organic talk show host, The Dirt Doctor, Howard Garrett, said yes when we invited him to share his expertise with us about growing trees in our North Texas yards. Our chat became episode 45, Growing Trees in North Texas with Howard Garrett. The snippet of the episode we're going to play focuses on the importance of soil health To the trees and other plants in our yard. So with the nickname Dirt Doctor, you have a long-standing reputation as an authority on soil health. Why is soil health so important for trees and other plants in our yards?
6: Well, everything starts with the soil. It's it's the the basis of all plant growth, plant life, plant growth, health of the plants and, and all that. It's not taught... In universities, as much as it should be, it's taught some, but we delve into it to a much greater depth because if you have the soil healthy, there are very few insect and disease problems that we have to deal with. That's one of the first benefits of the natural organic program. And then the insect and disease problems and parasites and other problems that we do have— Uh, And we do from time to time because we'll push the envelope. We'll try to plant something that's really not perfectly well adapted or something like that. And when we do need to deal with pest problems, we have solutions that work better. And that's the the well-kept secret. A lot of people think the organic program doesn't work as well and you can't control things as well and all that, but it works better. And it's all because when the soil is healthy— The roots of the plants are healthy. They have this mycorrhizal fungus and other beneficial microbes growing on the roots of the plants, and that's where the power comes from to make the plants available to take care of themselves.
1: I think Howard's stress on the importance of soil health touches on a thread that connects many of the pond's forays into the various aspects of the natural world, and that we've learned that so many parts of nature are connected and interdependent. Just as healthy soil impacts trees and other plants, then trees and other plants, they support insect life, bird life, mammals uh, in many different ways. From the John Bunker Sands Wetland Center episode, we learned about how the wetland habitats affect the quality of the water and uh, some of the impacts that has and benefits for uh, the community of people that live here in North Texas. So everything is interconnected and human beings are part of that connection as well. Um, sometimes by choice and sometimes we find ourselves because of our increasing and expanding development that uh, our lives are intersecting more and more with these natural communities. And uh, that can be a positive thing for us. It can be an interesting thing, um, but it also could uh, potentially be a negative thing if we we don't handle things in the best way. So I think that's one of the things I'll take most from the pond is – learning just about all the individual pieces but about how things fit together and how about how humans can better interact and support and enjoy the nature that's in our area and I will just kind of say it has been a pleasure
2: doing a lot of these episodes with you Greg and I know we've kind of like I know you mentioned we've gone through a lot of cast of characters as we've gone along just different people have come on and gone off just for different reasons some have gotten promoted and some people have gone on to other other jobs and other parts of I guess the city or the country. But yeah, we've been kind of, you've been kind of the steady force, and it's been a pleasure working with you any are you planning on getting into more herpetology stuff now that you're going to be
1: getting a little more free time now or well i'm not sure yet how much free time i'm going to have uh, i do know that i would like to continue to f- find opportunities to enjoy nature and a lot of what i've learned through this experience i think i will carry that with me into future experiences and i uh, I may possibly be involved with, uh, at some point, maybe not immediately, with a, one of the Texas Master Naturalist chapters like the North Texas Master Naturalists, or there's another one more on my side of town uh, that I, I might participate in. Uh, I also want to take this opportunity... Uh, To give a a big shout out, Uh, I know Mark was there at the very beginning, and this was his his brainchild and his baby. Over the years, he's also contacted us from afar and with some ideas about things we could do episodes on. So I know he's continued to watch, but I also want to especially highlight uh, Catherine, uh, who was there with me from the start and uh, was through probably the first three years of the podcast, and she helped. Uh, not only on the podcast episode, she ret- wrote several of our newsletter issues and she made tremendous um, efforts in putting these nature expos together. You know, th- they wouldn't have been possible if, uh, if she wasn't uh, working right there alongside uh, making this all happen. So. Thanks, Catherine. So as we get ready to wrap this up, I
2: know you've kind of given some shout outs and things. Any final words or final thoughts for the Pond
1: audience before you head off into the sunset, so to speak? I would just thank those that have been listening, uh, longtime listeners who've continued to um, check us out and see what we were talking about and listen to uh, some or even all of the episodes. I want to encourage those that may just be tuning in uh, to continue to to listen. I, I know as we head into time for preparation for the expo, we may not be putting out a whole lot in terms of new episodes while we focus on the expo, but uh, we've got a new team and we are hoping to put out new episodes. And I hope to be, uh, if even though I won't be contributing, I hope to be listening and uh, enjoying uh, the content that we continue to put out. And uh, I, I want to thank all our listeners, who, those that have been with us and those that are just joining us for um, tagging along for the ride. So, And thank you, Ryan, for for what you've done in, in this. Maybe
2: we can drag you back as a guest one of these days in the future. We'll see. We just want you to know you're always welcome. Uh, thanks, Ryan. So, Have a good one, and y'all keep listening. We'll maybe see you at the Expo and maybe in some of these future episodes as we come along. On the podcast on Natural
1: Dallas. The Pond.
0: You've been listening to The Pond Podcast, brought to you by the staff of the Dallas Public Library, where we inspire curiosity, connect people, and advance lives. See you next time, and until then, keep your eyes open for the natural world all around us.